that is their predisposition and that is introverted sensing. They've witnessed the sensory detail or the sensory experience and now that is embedded in their brain and it is replaying itself over and over and over again. Someone with high introverted sensing will look at the playbook and they will be able to remember the map forever. So we know the power of the brain and how it relates to how our body performs. So yeah, you could absolutely use that to your advantage, but you have to make sure that the sensory data that you're taking in is what you want to translate into the physical. Hey, welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Tan, and I'm so glad you're here with me today. This show is all about human performance, and I truly believe that self-awareness plays a major role in how you perform. And the best place to start in all of this, I believe, is knowing your personality type, which is lucky because today on the show, I chat with my very good friend, Sarah Tuhoro. Sarah is a personality typing expert. She uses a variety of methods to type as accurately as possible when typing someone's personality. But why is knowing your personality type important? Well, understanding your personality type will help you understand you, why you do the things you do, say the things you say, the way you do and say them, your communication style and the way you make decisions. And by understanding yourself, you are better able to understand others, which I believe is such a superpower. And when you know your personality type and dive deeper into the cognitive functions of that type, you can leverage your strengths and build upon your weaknesses to achieve even greater results for you and communicate and create greater relationships with others. Now, one thing before we get into this episode is that, yes, you will hear technical terms like cognitive functions, extroverted thinking, introverted thinking, function stack or hero function. And whilst you may not understand the terms themselves to begin with, Sarah does an excellent job of breaking them down and giving real life examples. So if the technical terms don't resonate, examples of that cognitive function should. This was such a fun episode to record. There are a whole lot of stories that both Sarah and I share demonstrating how our cognitive functions work, which I think are pretty funny. So without further ado, let's dive straight into this episode with Sarah Tohoro. Personality typing. I, whilst I kind of had heard of it in the past, I'd never heard of it or understood it in a way that you explain it to me. And I've learned more about myself in the past four or five weeks, however long we've been doing this, <laughs> than I have my entire life. Wow. <laughs> and things make sense to me now, why I do things or say things and why other people say or do things and I'm a lot more I'm patient yes I feel like I've always been patient um 
but there's more, I, there's a more of an understanding of why people say or do the things they do. And there's certainly more empathy there. Whereas in the past, I would have just been like, oh, what a dick. I mean, that's like a <laughs> shit thing to say. Or, or why would you say it like that? Like, mm-hmm. so now I have a better understanding. And I think this is super important for every single person on the planet to know because I think that would create a whole lot more understanding and harmony in the world. We're getting there. Well, well, we're going to start anyway, make a start on that (laughs) anyway. But I guess what I'm interested first in knowing is how did your journey begin in this? The journey. Um, Well, I think it started before I knew anything about personality theory. So, and this is indicative of my personality type. I've kind of gone through my entire life with a chip on my shoulder about people not understanding me. (laughs) And so I spent a long time trying to understand myself so that I could better understand other people and I guess subconsciously engineer ways of connecting with people because interactions were just falling flat and I felt really not even, I just felt like I couldn't be accepted for me because no one knew who I was. And so much of me is internal and I don't know how to get that out and I'm still working on that. And so then I met someone who was really into personality theory and they led me down the rabbit hole (laughs) and they just gave me probably the most helpful framework to date in terms of trying to understand myself and how I relate to other people. And so as soon as I realized that, like I've known for a while that language is everything. If you don't have the language to describe something, then you can't communicate it and it'll never be expressed. And so personality theory gave me a framework to start expressing to other people, this is who I am and how I operate what motivates me and why I do the things I do. And also this is what I'm really good at, which is very invisible. Um, And then it also gave me the language to understand how other people differ from that. So the journey has just been a process of teasing it all apart. Mm. And yeah, there's still so much to learn, but yeah, I guess that's where I'm up to. So you say framework, what is the framework? What is the framework? <laughs> well, one of my things about one of the things about my personality is I find it really hard to describe things in a linear way, so I'll do my best. But the framework can probably be most closely related to the Myers-Briggs type indicator, the M- MBTI, um, for people who know what that is. But I guess what they don't do, what Myers-Briggs doesn't do, is delve into the eight cognitive functions, which, as you would know, is like the juice. That's where the understanding is. And so the MBTI gives us these broad, um, generalised sort of statements about how people are or why people do the things that, that they do. Whereas the eight cognitive functions, which comes from Carl Jung forever ago, it kind of really breaks things down and allows you to explore the nuances of personality. So there are eight cognitive functions (laughs) and I'm going to try really hard with this. Um, And we all have all of them, but we preference them in a different order. 
Um, so they are introverted thinking, extroverted thinking, introverted feeling, extroverted feeling, introverted sensing, extroverted sensing, and introverted intuition and extroverted intuition. So we all possess all eight functions, but the order that we preference them in and the ones that we're stronger and weaker at completely change the way that we express ourselves and cognitively process information, basically, in its most basic form. Which blows (laughs) my mind because I've done the MBTI and, yeah, whilst that gives you a nice little breakdown, it's given me nothing in comparison to understanding myself and others when I learn about the cognitive functions. I'm still learning and I really haven't (laughs) gotten a good grasp of it. So in terms of where to go now to make this accessible and understandable for listeners, from this, what would you say like superficially is the best thing to know about this? Um, (laughs) I think you really just have to go on your own journey and dive into your own rabbit hole. I mean, obviously there's personality tests all over the internet. Mm. Um, they are, you know, various kinds of reliable (laughs) or unreliable. Um, well, they're mostly unreliable, right? They are. Yes. Um, not, and, and it's not even just the tests themselves. The way we perceive ourselves mm. is sometimes completely different from the way that, that we are, um, but also what we're best at and worst at, we're generally most unconscious of. So when you're answering these questions in these personality tests, you are blind to the thing that you should, um, quote, unquote, score highest on, and then the thing that you should score lowest on. Um, and so the test won't always capture that. Um, so I guess in an ideal world, you would get typed in person, but it depends if you have access to that. But otherwise, I think it's about, you know, the same as anything that relates to self-awareness is going on a bit of a journey and figuring out, okay, what resonates with me, what doesn't. And eventually you'll go through a process of elimination and you'll observe these things in yourself And then you'll be able to work out sort of what resonates and what doesn't. How we perceive ourselves. (laughs) This has only come to light for me in terms of um, I'm I'm learning more about this and trying to work with uh, people and trying to type and, and test them. And... Um, it's been an interesting journey in the sense that obviously I'm not yet good at this. <laughs> Where you come into it, <laughs> can help me. But getting them, we'll do the interview, but also getting them to do the test. And sometimes it's completely skewed and different. And so can you break down a little bit more h- how that differs when our perception of ourselves kind of takes over? Well, there's two layers to that. So I'm not sure if you've heard of like the Jahari window. So there's your open self, known to self, known to others. 
the blind self, not known to self, not known to others, the hidden self, known to self, not known to others, and then the unknown self, which isn't known to you or anyone else. So how, how do we know it exists then? <laughs> we don't. So how are we supposed to capture it on the personality questionnaire? You can't. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, there's obviously the layer that says I cannot report on a questionnaire what I don't know about myself. But then there is another layer where we get our ego invested in what the question's asking us. So if the question says something super generic like I care about others, who's going to answer no to that? <laughs> nah. <laughs> you know, and so... What it's trying to get at is it's trying to look at how highly you would score on the function of extroverted feeling, but, you know, and 16 types preference, I mean, sorry, eight of the 16 types preference extroverted feeling and eight preference introverted feeling. And they're trying to work out which one you are, but that question is one horrible at capturing that data. And two, those questions are really confronting. And if you can't be honest with yourself and say, or even know, um, the answer to the question then you know obviously it's not going to get captured but also the question is faulty because both introverted feelers and extroverted feelers care about people but how they show that care is completely different so yeah I mean I think the question is just don't do a good job of capturing all the nuances through terrible question asking but then also we don't know ourselves as well as we would like to Getting to know ourselves. <clears throat> I when when you first when we first sort of got into this, I have <laughs> to say I was a little apprehensive, which is funny now that I look back on it because you could see right through that anyway. <laughs> you could see who I was. You could see me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I thought I was able to. <laughs> I don't know just I thought that if you did the test on me that would mean you would see into my soul and everything would be revealed but it but the funny thing was the fact that like we didn't really like the more you got to know me the more you knew who I was anyway so it didn't really matter but in terms of the people who go well I don't think I want you to know about me or who I am like that vulnerability and that apprehension around that, um, can we break that down a bit? Because I think self-awareness is so important to our growth and to, I mean, everything, our relationships and the way we communicate with others. So how do we get past that? And what can you say to those who are maybe a little apprehensive in doing this? themselves I would say I can see you anyway (laughs) exactly I know and that's the hilarious thing right now that I know a little bit more about it it's like there's nothing you can say or do yeah and it's hilarious because um you know when we go into organizations you know I've heard people say things to their colleagues like oh it was a bad day I don't know if they're going to be able to capture my result like it doesn't matter the things that telltale signs of your cognitive functions your personality traits and um how you preference those is so unconscious and so woven into who you are that you can't not do it um it's just 
you know, to someone who knows what they're looking for, it's just visible. Mm. And I guess, you know, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. But for me, the one of the key motivators for exploring this is I believe that humans are inherently good. I believe everyone is perfect just as they are. <laughs> you know, the, the core self, before all the layers of bullshit that mm. cloud our judgment and get in the way of us being good humans, I think at our core we are good um, and everyone is perfect just as they are. And I think sometimes people drive us nuts because you know, it's written in our personality types that those two are going to clash and it wouldn't matter what happened or the conversations that were had. Some people are just going to grade on us. And so I think personality theory gives me the tools to be able to bring awareness to that and say, okay, is this person annoying me because they're doing something wrong or are they annoying me because that's just how they are and either you know, our personality types just clash or there's some sort of clash in values. And do I need to change them or berate them for that? Or can I just accept that that's the case and move on? And if I decide not to move on because I want to build a connection and a relationship with this person, how can I meet them where they're at? And so often as humans, we have this, I think this subconscious programming in the background that says about other people, if I could just change this about them, then X, Y, Z then I would feel better, then our relationship would be better, you know, whatever that is. And we're so unconscious of our desire to change people. But I have this desire now after spending much time trying to change people unsuccessfully, <laughs> and that didn't lead to a lot of fulfillment and happiness for either, this desire to go, okay, this is who they are. This is where they're at right now. How can I come to you and meet you there and still connect even though both of us are you know, perfectly imperfect and completely flawed? How can we still build a connection, build intimacy and have a functional relationship without trying to change each other? You said you think everyone is perfect <laughs> at the core. Is that Yeah, the I mean, <clears throat> let's pull apart what you mean by perfect, first of okay. all. <laughs> you know. Okay. I think what does by, perfect mean? And I don't mean we're never going to make mistakes. I guess what I mean is by design, we are all as we should be. Yes. So we're perfectly ourselves. Yes. Whatever yes. that's meant to look like. Yeah, whatever that is. And no, that, that doesn't mean that anyone's capable of perfection. Sure. So at what point, even if we know someone's personality type, at what point do our Condition, does our conditioning, our past experiences, trauma play a role in how we present based <laughs> on our personality type? Honestly, I haven't fully teased apart trauma and personality, so I can't give you a solid answer on that. What I can say is before discovering personality type, I was very... Um, heavily invested in the concept of trauma and believed that trauma shaped absolutely everything that we do. Um, and that's like big T trauma and little t trauma. And so I was kind of using trauma as the framework to understand people. 
oh, they're doing this. This must have happened when they were a child. Mm. Oh, they were doing this. This must have happened when they were a child. And what was hilarious was when I discovered personality theory, it outlined some of these traits and behaviours. And I thought, okay, so this behaviour or this trait can actually be attributed to a cognitive function. So, like, does trauma matter at all? Um, And so I kind of had this epiphany that psychology can be extremely pathologizing. And when we delve into self-awareness and we learn about the impact of trauma, that sometimes we can get a little hyper fixated on it um, and start to look for it in people when in reality, the way that your personality forms makes you predisposed to experiencing things particular things as traumatic and I'm mainly referring to little t trauma not big sure (laughs) if that makes sense yeah um but for example my sister and I have two very different personality types and because of that we may experience the same event or interaction but one of us will find it traumatic and the other won't and that's because of how we perceive the world and process the data that's coming at us So I haven't, I don't fully have an answer and I haven't fully come to grips with the impact and the interweaving of personality and trauma, but I know that I am no longer content continually pathologizing people and looking at them through a lens of trauma because I could never know for Mm. one. Um, And two, it's not that helpful. Like trauma is something that you really have to sort of delve into and address on your own. And I can't really connect with you in that experience, mm. but I can connect with you at the level of the personality. And so that's kind of what I pursue as the framework to understand now. Well, let's then go into personality clashing. Because <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> so how do we know? I mean, could you just put it down to personality clashing all of the time? I don't get along with this person. It's because our personalities clash. I don't like what they've said, our personalities clash. I don't like what they do or what they put up on social media. <laughs> it must be because our personalities clash. Is this is this what it comes down to? I think that, you know, there are lots of different facets within the personality that can clash. So your cognitive functions can clash. We also, the 16 types is broken down into four temperaments. So temperaments are known to clash. We also look at the interaction styles. So how you interact can clash. So it absolutely can be the case. But my experience is instead of just writing it off as a personality clash, if you delve deeper and work out why you're clashing and become aware of it and conscious of the way that you interact with each other, then it can absolutely be overcome. So uh, for example, a really trivial example is... um, the person that introduced me to personality theory was talking about how um, he gets really annoyed and like he thinks it's really comical that people travel to work on those electric scooters in the city because he's like, you know, I'm walking along and I'm beating you because you have to stop at every traffic like anyway. It's inefficient. So why would you even bother? (laughs) And being on a scooter is being in present in the physical world, which is extroverted sensing 
And he has extroverted sensing blind spot, which is kind of self-explanatory. So it didn't even cross his mind that perhaps people just enjoyed the experience of having the wind in your hair and going for a little Zoom. And his personality type is really about efficiency um, and doing things in the most logical and efficient way as possible. So to him, that made absolutely no sense. But to someone with high extroverted sensing, it would have made all the sense in the world. And sometimes it's that simple. And, you know, I pointed that out to him and he was like, yeah, oh, I suppose I never thought of it that way. And that's probably the line that comes up most. Oh, I never thought of that that way. Well, yeah, because you're too busy looking at the world through your own lens Mm. instead of trying to understand other people's experience of life. (laughs) I love this. Um, (laughs) So my own story... (laughs) Let's hear it. Let's hear it. We, you got me and another two people in the same room. (laughs) And it's so funny because I I would say that I, you know, got along with them and, you know, like them both. But when we got into the work that we were doing together, one of them, the way they would speak in the group really got me like, ah, don't say that voice. I just didn't like the, uh, I guess, the communication format, could you say? And I didn't realise what that was until you explained it for me. So can you explain what happened there? Well, I mean, there could be a million explanations for the same thing. But one theory is, is so you have introverted thinking as your inferior function, which is number four in the stack of eight. So can we just, can we go, what is introverted thinking for those who've got no idea what that means? (laughs) So this is my, including me, (laughs) this is my child function. So I still honestly really struggle to um, explain it well, Okay. um, because I'm not that great at it either. But introverted thinking is basically a process of it's pure logic and it's a process of um, like logical deduction. So um, where rationale, a lot of people call themselves logical and they're actually not, they're rational. So rationale is kind of attached to feeling and belief and that's extroverted thinking. Whereas logic is pure fact and it doesn't have any sort of investment in feelings at all. It just looks at the data and says, if it's not this, then it must be this. Um, And it will just go through that process of filtering um, to come to the truth. So you have that as number four, the inferior which basically means that it's one of your weakest functions and we experience a lot of insecurity with this function. And so as we've spoken about, people with inferior introverted thinking can often feel stupid. Yes, yes, I do. (laughs) Whether that's the case or not. Um, And so the person that you're referring to has introverted thinking in their parent position, um, which is the second position, which means it's strong and they tend to parent with it. And so they're basically communicating and parenting with your with the function that you feel insecure about. And so that can be really activating, even though you have no idea why it's happening. And like I know for a fact that it's well-intentioned and that, you know, someone with introverted thinking, say, for example, the, the fourth person, they have introverted thinking at the top and like they don't find 
that person confronting at all because that function is not a source of insecurity for them. Whereas I have it as my third function, so not amazing at it, and I felt confronted, and then you have it as your inferior function. <laughs> even worse. <laughs> and you felt even more confronted by it. Yeah. Um, and I think the hilarious thing is that we were able to draw a pattern when I said, here's some YouTube videos about a guy that talks about personality theory if you want to learn some more stuff. And you said you didn't really like him either or you didn't, you found him confronting too and they were the exact same personality type. So we were able to kind of draw that connection, um, which I think is absolutely hilarious. And conversely, one of the other people, the one that you didn't find as confronting, has extroverted feeling in their inferior slot and you have it at the top and I have it as the parent and the way I express emotions to them, they find really confronting. But the way you are and express emotions, they find really soothing. So, <laughs> you know, it's completely based on what are my functions? What's my relationship to those functions? And how do the people around me activate or support my expression of those functions? And this is completely unconscious. This blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just how it can how you can preference a cognitive function and how that's going to completely change the way you communicate, but also how you perceive communication. Yes. 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 Mind blown. Okay. So I feel like there, it would be useful to go through the cognitive functions to give people an idea of what the heck we are talking about. And you have given us a little bit in terms of the sensor, sensing, um, and a little bit of the thinking and the feeling. But can we break them down so um, when people hear it, they can resonate with, with them a bit more? <laughs> okay. So extroverted thinking is basically rationale. So it's a focus on other people's thoughts and external data. Um, and it is designed to understand and judge how rational or efficient or effective something is. Introverted thinking is about logic and deduction. So it focuses on one's own internal thoughts and ideas, and it goes through a process of using logic to discover the truth. Um, introverted feeling is empathy and ethics. So it's a focus on other people's feelings and it basically reviews a large range of human emotions, um, values and ethics with the goal of harmony. Um, it's about the, also about the outward expression of feelings. Um, and it likes to motivate other people towards growth. Introverted feeling is about personal values and beliefs, and it's a focus on one's own internal feelings and beliefs to guide them. Um, it goes through a pro constant process of exploring and refining how it feels about things and it's concerned with its inner emotional state and moral order. Extroverted sensing is about outer world experiences. It's about perceiving and immediately reacting to external, external sensory details um, and it's seeking a wide range of novel sensory experiences and it's about how people physically interact with the world around them. Introvert, introverted sensing is about re referencing the past and it's concerned with tradition and duty, as I mentioned. It's great at retaining sensory details and information. It condenses information 
uh, accesses past experiences in order to inform its present or future decisions. And it is, like I mentioned before, about routine organisation structure and internal bodily sensations like hunger and thirst. Um, and then intuition, extroverted intuition is about consequences and possibilities. So it's constantly exploring abstract possibilities and synthesizing and expressing those ideas. Um, and it's heavily associated with like brainstorming, innovating and divergent thinking. And then introverted intuition is about vision, focus and epiphanies. And that is about, it's a future oriented, like extroverted intuition is as well, a future oriented function where it is constantly collecting and synthesizing conscious and subconscious information to create patterns, insights and theories. And it loves to seek deep underlying meaning. Which, which resonates with me because it's in my top four. It is. It's number two it's for It's number two. It's number two. And um, I joke around with my husband and you now about <laughs> I'll either say I've had an epiphany yes. <laughs> or I've got an idea. Yes. <laughs> Constantly coming up or thinking about all of the things that can, can be done and and how and how to make things better or more efficient or more fun or yeah so yeah hopefully that resonates with with listeners as to what they can relate to and um, find in themselves you've mentioned hero parent child inferior can we just talk about those quickly because um just so people get an understanding of what we mean by that. And maybe we could refer it to my type, my personality type, so they can get a better understanding of what that actually means when we say hero function or parent function. So I am, what am I? An (laughs) ENFJ. You are. So I'll go through the function positions first. And then we'll flick to how it manifests in your type. So when you say that people have a stack of eight cognitive functions, they usually assume that the first one is the strongest and the eighth one is the weakest. And unfortunately, it's not that simple. (laughs) So (laughs) so our hero function, function number one, is the strongest and most natural function. And it's one that we're often unaware of, but other people generally notice um our parent function is where we feel our strongest sense of responsibility um, and that is our second strongest our child function uh we can feel insecure around this function number three but we also find that it can be a space where we can find relief from our other functions and find enjoyment and create creativity and play Our inferior, number four, is one of our weakest functions uh, and generally a source of insecurity, but it is an area that we generally aspire to improve in. Our opposing function is number five, and that's a function where we can be stubborn and uncooperative. And what's interesting is number five is actually quite strong. We're usually good at it, but we usually choose not to engage with it because it directly threatens our top function. And you can't engage in both at the same time, which we'll explain when we go into your time. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, we can be stubborn and uncooperative there. 
The Critical Parent is number six and that's the function where we can be harsh and critical towards ourselves and others. If you can kind of imagine like a nagging critical parent, that's kind of how we engage with that. Our seventh one is our blind spot and that's our weakest function and generally the function we're least aware of and most blind to. And then our demon function is number eight, which is also weak and the most sort of other of our functions. Um, But if it is developed well, it can lead to significant growth and self-awareness. So (laughs) you have extroverted feeling in the hero position, which means that you're really good at it. Um, And there are healthy and unhealthy expressions of each function in each slot. So an FE, what we would call an FE hero or an extroverted feeling hero, if it's unhealthy, then they'll be quite arrogant about how caring they are. But if it's healthy and developed, then it'll be sort of more modest and humble about how much it cares for others. Your parent slot has introverted intuition or NI in it. And in that slot, introverted intuition can be careless and impulsive with what it chooses to pursue. But when it's healthy, it kind of manages to hone in on a vision, imagine something, and then pursue that responsibly. You have extroverted sensing in the child slot, in the third slot, um, which is about the physical world, as we mentioned. Um, When that's unhealthy, you might be conscious of or worried about giving people a bad experience. Um, But when that's healthy and developed, you'll really enjoy giving people a good experience and performing. Uh, You have introverted thinking in the inferior slot, which, as we mentioned before, is worried that it's stupid. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But when it's healthy, it aspires to find the answers and know the truth. Your fifth function is introverted feeling. And in its unhealthy expression, it's worried about its self-worth and has low self-worth. And in its healthy expression, (laughs) it knows that it's worthy. And this is what I was talking about before. So technically you should be really good at knowing what you value and how you feel. But in order to be able to connect in with that, you have to put your extroverted feeling aside. So you will have to go through a process with this function of coming into yourself and putting down the desire to prioritize everyone else, everyone else. And you will have to put away your hero, which you're so good at and you use so unconsciously, you will have to put that to one side in order to be able to engage with this function. And that's why we can be oppositional towards it, not because it's weak, but because we're required to suspend our hero function in order to be able to engage with it. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> and so your last three, you have extroverted intuition as the critical parent. And so in its unhealthy expression, it can be critical of the ideas and motivations of other people, um, but healthy, it learns to accept um, the, de- the desire other people have to explore multiple possibilities. Your blind spot. <laughs> which you didn't believe me about, is introverted sensing. Um, So it can be unaware of past experiences and hesitant to incorporate that into informing its decisions. 
Um, and in its healthy version, it can be aware of the value of past experiences and use that to create a holistic picture about whether something's, you know, a good idea or not. And then lastly, extroverted thinking demon, uh, unhealthy, it'll be dismissive of the thoughts of other people and it'll feel like people with high extroverted thinking are bossy, um, arrogant, arrogant, egotistical. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) Um, But in its healthy expression will um, accept accept the opinions of others. So that's just like a, I mean, that is like a blip on the radar of what your actual personality is. But those are just some little tidbits about how it might manifest. What was the function where we could be stubborn and uncooperative? Our opposing function. Our opposing function. Which is number five. And it's always the opposite to your hero function. So if you're an extroverted feeler, then your opposing will be introverted feeling. Um, Mm. And so I have introverted intuition as my top function. And so extroverted intuition is my opposing function. So what does that manifest for you? How does that, what does that look like? (laughs) So. Dubbing and uncooperative. Well, so introverted intuition for me is like bullet gate energy. Like I have this picture in my mind's eye of what I can see or the vision I want to achieve. I can, I can taste it. I can feel it. It's so close. I'm, I'm there because it's abstract and future, but that's where I have a tendency to live. So that that's very honed in and it's very sort of like focused on one thing. And so extroverted intuition goes, hang on, why are you just thinking about that one thing? Look at all these possibilities. <laughs> and so in order to engage my extroverted intuition, I have to suspend my desire to focus really strongly on that one thing. And I have to open myself up to other ideas. And that can be really confronting for me. Um, and it's also about consequences. So I have a tendency to not think about the potential consequences of following this vision or engaging in these certain behaviors um, because extroverted intuition is the thing that says, hang on a minute, if you do this, this might happen. And I kind of just swat it away. Like it's not important to me because it requires me to come out of my hero function, but I can confirm (laughs) that there is benefit in actually listening to that fifth function and that's been a massive area of growth for me and it was hilarious I had this encounter with my sister on the couch this morning and I was having a glass of water (laughs) and I put the glass of water on the couch like on the soft couch (laughs) and usually I would have just like left it there and it would have fallen over and spilled and I would have thought yeah I probably knew that was going to happen but I just don't listen to it And then this morning I put it down and I looked at it and I was like, no. And I shifted it to a hard surface and she looked at me and she said, I'm really proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) So I can definitely feel myself like I'm good at my fifth function. I have the consequences and other possibilities come up. It's just learning to listen to them. That's so good. (laughs) I, I can, I mean, I was going to say I can relate to that, but I can't, but Adam, my husband, does almost similar things. He'll put hot tea, cups of hot tea, or his dinner, plate of dinner, (laughs) 
and like rest it right on the edge of the table. And I'm like, what are you doing? Put it in the middle of the table where it's safe and you're not going to lose it. Because if you do lose it, then all hell will break loose. How do you not see this? We will die. die. And what's funny is you have that function in the critical parent slot. So you are you are really likely to be a critical parent in relation in relation to consequences. Yes, so that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> that's so funny. That's what I love about learning more about this is you then start to pick up on these things and you understand it and you mm. understand you know those around you when they do these things that you go why why must you do that exactly it makes sense yes. you go okay yes and I think what what's really interesting and one of the things I found most interesting was if you so our child function is where we experience um relief from our other functions creativity enjoyment play it can also be a deep source of wounding so if you know that you're you have a partner and their child function is your critical parent function, like that's something to be super conscious of because the chances that you're going to feel like a nagging critical parent and create inner child wounding around this function is actually really high. And so I've seen people, my mum has this in her relationship, their critical parent is her child and now they have an awareness of what's actually happening and why it's happening. And so by learning about where other people's functions are in relation to you, you can actually see that relationship between those two functions play out and be more conscious of it. And like, do you need to be a nagging critical parent? Like if something's going to fall on the ground, maybe. (laughs) Yes. You will not be losing dinner tonight, my love. (laughs) I got you. But sometimes we engage with functions in ways that are completely unnecessary. Totally. Um, And so being aware of that is really helpful. Is there an example you can give of that? Uh, I can give the example of my mum when we first realised that this was the case. So she has extroverted sensing child. So she revels in physical experiences. I think I'm the same, aren't I? Yes, you are. Yeah, I'm yeah. the same, yeah. And so she was having this experience with this donut. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good already. <laughs> and she was eating this donut and, like, licking all the icing off her fingers and she was just having the best time. <laughs> and then her partner comes along and, like, gets really critical. Like, what are you doing? You're creating such a mess. Like, you're a mess. What are you doing? Why are you eating it like that? And she said to me, why is that? And, yeah, she was engaging in a really enjoyable physical experience in a childlike manner and her partner was being critical of that because that same function is in the critical parent slot and she can't get her head around or understand why you could possibly want to do that because that's not her relationship to the same function. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So obviously I've got a lot of listeners who... They train a lot. They play sport. It's a big part of their life and what they do. In this personality type, typing types, you've mentioned a healthy and unhealthy version. Can we connect the two together here and how to make the best out of um, knowing our type? And what that could mean looking healthy and unhealthy in um, like a physical 
aspect, the training? Like, I think I'm someone that's completely removed from the performance athlete realms. Um, but I dated a national athlete once, or an international athlete, and I found that one of the greatest issues is psychology and pressure. And I think it's something that's not talked about enough in terms of performance is the psychological side of things. And so the only way I could suggest to use type theory in the performance space is to take some pressure off yourself. So one of the things I noticed that they did is they would have a bad game Mm. and then you could literally tell that they were replaying it over and over and over and over and over again in their head. And psychology tells us that creating those mental pictures in your head is giving your brain instructions about what to do next. And so that we get in this big hole and one bad game would turn into a bad season, would turn into a bad year, would turn into whatever. And they eventually retired like that. And that is their predisposition. And that is introverted sensing. They've witnessed the sensory detail or the sensory experience. And now that is embedded in their brain and it is replaying itself over and over and over again. And you can't necessarily, you can absolutely engage in practices to change that mode of thinking. But I think it's learning our relationship to the cognitive functions. And when someone says, just forget about it, move on, you can take the pressure off and know why you can't move on. Um, And it's, I guess, the same thing with the actual physical skills. So, yes, you can absolutely build and increase your ability to engage with skills in a better way, but some people will naturally be better at having an awareness of how their body moves through space than others. So you can train your little heart out, (laughs) but if you have low SE or extroverted sensing like me and you are standing next to someone who has high extroverted sensing, they may get it quicker because they have more of an awareness of how their body moves through space. And that is just how their brain is wired. And there's nothing that you can do about that per se. Yes, you can. (laughs) This is like, so if someone's high extroverted sensing, then their ability to move through space to pick up skills is really high, really good. Yes, because their awareness of the physical is super high. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other person is um, high in introverted sensing. Well, they usually be good at both. So, yeah, I mean, that, and that's where. So if you're, well, if you're high extroverted sensing, you'll yeah. have, or if that's at the top, you'll have introverted po- sensing yeah. as the fifth. Um, and what's really interesting, and I don't know this for sure, but I have a theory. Introverted sensing is about internal bodily sensations, right? So I have questioned the relationship between introverted sensing and pain tolerance. So if you are opposed to your internal bodily sensations and you have extroverted sensing in the top slot, which would give you introverted sensing in the fifth slot, which you're opposed to, not only would you be more aware of how your body moves through space, you would be more oppositional to pain. So how much of an advantage is that as an athlete to have an an extremely good awareness of how your body moves through space? and be opposed to feeling and tapping into the way that you feel pain when you're training or performing. See, this is the cool (laughs) stuff because I think athletes 
especially the elite are super fucking human and they're really good at completely numbing out a certain aspect, for example, the pain tolerance. Mm. Like they'll just go through whatever they have to go through to get to the goal, get to achieve the thing that they need to achieve. Um, But I love this because you can have both. Yeah, like you said, I mean, you could use either cognitive function to your advantage and that's why I think it's so important to know your type because if you know, let's just take the introverted sensing, Mm -hmm. which is the opposite of the person who's skillful (laughs) and able to pick up things, not saying that they're not able to do that, but like it's not. It's the opposite function or it's it's the introverted version of that function. Yeah, so just a quick reminder: what's what are their what's their superpower? <laughs> the introverted sensing um, is all about structure, organization, memory for sensory details. Memory details, cool. So, your example, you said how athletes, if they play a bad game, they can replay that over and over, and then it can stick, and that's kind of like they've made a map. Mm-hmm. Then. Mm-hmm. And that can sort of spiral down negatively. But if we were to flip that and go, well, how can you use that function to your advantage? You go, well, okay, what's my position and who are the best people in that position? So who can I watch over and over again? So I'm creating this mental map of what to do and how to use it or do the thing really, really well. Yeah, for sure. And if you're, or if you're looking at a playbook, someone with high introverted sensing will look at the playbook and they will be able to remember the map forever. Um, so yeah, that's absolutely a thing. And you know, they've shown in studies that you know, if you get the body to do something or imagine it's doing something mm. and then actually do something, both actually learn how to do it, both the people who have done it and the people who have imagined it. So we know the power of the brain and how it relates to how our body performs. So, yeah, you could absolutely use that to your advantage, but you have to make sure that the sensory data that you're taking in is what you want to translate into exactly. the physical. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Is there anywhere else we could use that? So we've we've given sensing as the main sort of function for athletes and training or um, what about then if we let's go performance in the sense of having to show up at a board meeting and give a presentation, like what cognitive function um, is probably the best one to hone into to uh, whether it is memorize, power slides, power slides, PowerPoint slides, um, or information or presenting in a way that's going to be engaging. See, and I think this, if we take a step back, my issue with um, using personality theory in really tokenistic ways is, you know, like Myers-Briggs was rolled out in organisations and people, whether it was intended this way or not, people use it like, tell me who the best person for this job is or tell me what personality type does this best. And for sure there's something to that. But my argument is if you know yourself well enough, you don't have to change what you're doing, you change how you do it. Mm. So... If, for example, like like what you're talking about is extroverted thinking, basically getting up and speaking at people about 
Like you would have used introverted sensing to memorize all the details and then you would use extroverted sensing to communicate it. I'm low in both of those. <laughs> so um, you can tell when you ask me questions about recalling all this past information, I'm trying to grab it from a place that is not as concrete as someone with high introverted sensing would have. So it's not so much what do I need to lean into because my choice is to completely circumvent the need to access my extroverted thinking and introverted sensing because while it is an area of growth and development for me, if I try and function in the world with those functions, I'm going to be really tired and exhausted. I'm going to get really frustrated and no one's ever going to see how good my ideas are. And so it's about, okay, I need to talk to people and give a presentation. How can I do that which leans into my functions better rather than the functions that most people use to do that? And so my hero is extroverted intuition, which basically means the information that I've taken in and the data is there <laughs> somewhere, but I cannot access it in a linear way. So my preferred format, and like this is great as an introvert, is have someone ask me questions and then my introverted intuition grabs at the right information when it can. So my mom explains her brain as a filing cabinet and everything is like perfectly ordered, perfectly sequential and alphabetized. And when she needs something, she goes into her brain, she pulls it out and she just knows where to find it. But my, like the way I describe my brain is, you know, I have all these papers all over the floor and all over my office and it like, I can't choose to go around and find everything. But if someone bursts through my office door and says, where is this paper? I go, oh, here it is. And I just kind of know where it is. Um, and so I'm slowly learning about myself. The best situations for me to convey information are situations like this, where I'm responding to what someone else is asking um, and in completely non-linear formats. So standing up and giving a lecture is never going to have me lean into my best functions. But if I'm sitting down getting excited, answering people's questions about something that I've studied, that's going to elicit a much greater response. And my hope is that the world will kind of cotton on to this, particularly across work and education, and we will learn that by forcing people to do things one way and to present one way and to have their ideas heard one way, you are always going to be forcing a portion of the population to use functions that they're not good at. And so the world that is wide, the way that we do things, which is for sure the majority, are um, at an advantage. Mm. But for those people who have to, I mean, they're in a job <laughs> where they have to stand up and <laughs> present something, whatever it is, knowing that maybe the fun cognitive functions that are better suited to doing this are in their weak spots. I mean, what can we say to them to give them a bit of um, reassurance that, yeah, they're still they're still capable of delivering something that's going to resonate and be really powerful still, even though it's not going to be they're not going to be super excited to be getting up in front of people and doing it. Yeah, I mean, this could be contrary to the advice you're trying to get out of me. <laughs> but um, yes, we absolutely can all use all eight cognitive functions and we do. But my advice would be learn your type, mm. learn about what you're amazing at 
and try and do things in a way that allows you to tap into them best. Yes. Um, so you won't, yes, there's sometimes you can't get away with, you know, like, oh, I'm not going to give this presentation today, Bob, because I'm an introvert <laughs> and I have this as my top function. So I'm going to sit here and you're going to ask me questions. Yeah. Like, no, I understand that that's not the reality of the world. And so if I had to get up and do a presentation, I would do it begrudgingly. Mm. But if you can find out where your genius spot is, what your superpowers are, then you can leverage them and use them to the extent that your workplace permits you to. Um, and that will always be easier, more fulfilling, more rewarding, and the result will always be way better. Excellent. <laughs> so let's just say people go out there and go, yep, I want to do this. I want to find out my person. And they do their typing. They know what they are. Then what? Well, I suppose it really depends. Like, are you doing it because you want to know more about yourself or are you doing it because you want to know more about others or both? Like there are, there is a lot of information on the internet that you can find about personality type. My advice would be be discerning because, you know, the people that I've kind of sent off on their rabbit holes have come back with information that's not necessarily, you know, well founded Mm. Um, and try it on for fit. And I guess not only like go through a process of not only finding the information on the internet and seeing what fits, but ask people about yourself, you know, like people are our greatest mirrors. So ask people about their experience of you, because that's probably going to be a much higher indicator (laughs) of how you are than what you might be able to see in yourself. And there's been a lot of people who have had, I've heard people say, Oh, um, there was, for example, one in one of the organisations that we're in and she said, "Um, I don't know why, but people call me the glue. I can't see that, but people call me the glue. And so she has extroverted feeling as her top function. And so her superpower is basically bringing people together in harmonious ways. And everyone around her can see that, but she cannot. So, yeah, have conversations with people about, their experience of you and everyone will experience you differently because our functions interact differently with different types. And so the more feedback you get, the better picture you'll have of how lots of different people experience you. And then like also ask people about their experience of themselves. And I think stop making assumptions that, you know, (laughs) because we see a behavior or we observe something in someone and we as humans make a story about that, make up a story about it. So we make an assumption, we assume that assumption is correct and then we act on that assumption. So get really curious if you see something in someone, like ask, you know, don't make an assumption that it is this because this is your experience ask them what their experience is and you'll learn a lot about other people that way too. So can you break that down a little bit more? Do you mean like if someone says a certain thing or does a certain thing or in a certain way, why do you do that? Yes, yeah. Or uh, tell me about that. Um, For example, there's like I know there's a function (laughs) that really bothers me (laughs) because it is in my eighth slot and it's my demon function and, you know, we can get triggered by um, expressions of the function that are in our eighth slot. And so that's introverted sensing 
which is very associated with things like, well, as a whole, it's basically um, memory for sensory details, internal um, like cues like hunger and thirst. It is um, order, structure, um, routine. It's very um, associated with like the comfort zone, control. And so as someone who has next to no relationship (laughs) with that function, for better or worse, when I see it in other people, it irks me. Um, It's also about like duty and tradition. So when I see people doing things without questioning it and subscribing to this idea that, you know, I have to finish school and then I have to go to uni and then I have to find a husband and then I have to have kids and get married and find the picket fence. I'm like, yuck. (laughs) Mm. And so I made the assumption that people were just doing that because, you know, they haven't questioned anything and they're just following what society wants for them. And yeah, that might be the case, but those things are really important to those people, particularly if they have introverted feeling, which is about, morals and values and beliefs and they have decided that it is their belief that following that tradition is important and so who am I to come in and say well it's not you've picked the wrong thing to call important um so yeah I think like that doesn't require me necessarily to have a conversation and I can come to that conclusion on my own that that's kind of my stuff that I'm carrying around Mm. and projecting onto other people But I guess when we don't understand, like, one, do we have to? Do we have to understand people to accept them? And two, if we want to understand them, then we should have more conversations with people about their experience. And, and yeah, put aside our assumptions about what their experience is because you could never know. So now that you know this about yourself... (laughs) And those people with that function in their highest stack, yes. whatever we call that, yeah, yeah. How do how do you now deal with that? What have you changed in whether it's what you do or say or the way you think when interacting with someone like that? Well, for one, I wouldn't berate or belittle someone mm-hmm. or judge them for being like that. Um, it doesn't mean it doesn't annoy me. Like that's you know, me, I'm on a path of still learning how to fully embody that acceptance for other people. But I guess I'm much less likely now to try to change people, which is, again, sort of woven into my personality type to be the, you know, they call it introverted thinking God complex. Like, um, and it happens when we have it in the child position, we can get a bit God complexy, like I know what's best for the world and you need to all change and then I can <laughs> yes, save you. This. <laughs> um, so I guess maybe the most pertinent thing is that I have conversations with myself in my head constantly. So if something's bothering me, I'm asking, okay, is this a me thing or is this a them thing? Like every relationship I have is co-created. I am an active participant in every single relationship that I have. Is there something I'm not asking for that I need? Am I remaining in a relationship that's not necessarily aligned with what I want? Or is this something that I need to look at and address within myself? And so I guess with this framework, I'm constantly having conversations like that. What What's happening here? I'm bothered. What's the issue? 
and what's the appropriate course of action. And sometimes it's nothing. Um, and sometimes I figure it out and find out later that it's different. But yeah, I think the continual conversations in my head about what the actual problem is instead of just they're annoying me and it's their fault mm. and they need to change, which, mm-hmm. I mean, you can't do anything with that. Yeah. It's completely unhelpful. Yeah. What are your thoughts around um, if people want to be tight? Yes. So I would always recommend um, being typed in person over questionnaires for all the reasons listed at the start of the podcast. Um, And we go through a process where there's actually two of us. So we know that, for example, I might be good at typing people, but I have certain biases or biases in my personality, which means that that's not as, as objective. So we always get a second person to run over it. And so we have this sort of more holistic view. And that would always be a much more reliable way of having your personality typed rather than a questionnaire. So yes, that would be ideal. Sarah, one tip for people if they want to get to know themselves better so that they can appreciate themselves and others. I mean, obviously it's like get tight. <laughs> the whole <right>? podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, start engaging in a process of becoming conscious of who you are, what you do and why you do what you do. And I think Not all of us are avid question askers. You and I definitely are. But yes, I think, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Bring conscious awareness to that. And even if it's not personality theory that you use to unpack that, um, I think that that's always the first step in in self-awareness of any kind. Sarah, you're amazing. I think you're an absolute genius in this stuff and I'm so enjoying the process of getting to know myself through you because you're the one who's telling me most about me because I'm still trying to learn about myself. (laughs) You're awesome. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That was Sarah Tohoro on all things personality, theory and typing. And I have to say, I'm, I just, I love this work so much. I am still learning <clears throat> so much about myself, but it's one of those things where I'm constantly so aware of what I say and what I do, but also what's happening around me and what other people are saying and doing and how they go about things in life. And I just, I'm picking up things and it's just so, it's revelating. It's just, it's, it's so powerful, this stuff. When you have an understanding of yourself and others, there's just, there's almost this sense of peace of being able to be yourself and at peace with the things you say and do, um, but also having a way to become your best self and understanding what that journey and path could look like. So I love this work so much. And if you are interested in getting typed to understand your personality type, to understand yourself better, then watch out for part two of the personality episode with Sarah because we're coming at you again and we've got some really, really exciting news coming with that episode. So you will have the chance to be typed and learn so much more about yourself and it's just we're really excited about this so keep an eye out it will be out in the next few weeks and um yeah 
we'll, 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 I'll keep, I'll keep that under wraps for now, but you're going to want to listen to that episode. It's going to be so good. And, um, yeah, I'm super excited. So until then, once again, thank you for tuning into this show. I so appreciate you taking the time. I know there's a bazillion other podcasts out there. So Thank you for choosing this one to listen to today. I really appreciate you. So grateful. Have the best day, week, month, and year. Stay awesome. And I'll see you next time. Bye.